This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In the industry, we call them cigarette burns. That's the cue for a changeover. He flips the projectors, movie keeps right on going, and nobody in the audience has any idea. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Alton. Right, that was a good, good <laughs> pause there. It was, you know, it was calculated. Yeah, I figured. It was, it was, it was very... a little contrived. <laughs> you know what else is calculated, Joe? Mm-hmm. Uh, the release of this uh, this monstrosity known as Batman versus Superman. Batman v Superman: Colon Dawn of Justice. Um, we're not going to devote a whole segment to this movie, but we did see it as a you know a, a good bridge to our the real meat of this podcast. Um, which will be midnight special, but um, you know, I, I think there's things that you know we've we've got to get out there with with Batman v Superman. Yeah, what do you now feel that, is calculated about it? Like the time that it's coming out? Um, get calculated, I guess, in the sense that all these gigantic movies like that by big studios are calculated, and mm-hmm. but even more so the way the movie was constructed and put together. Um, just diving right in, they're literally the movie stops about two hours in to give you a trailer reel for the future justice league oh characters God. i know and like uh so we've already you know talked about this movie on the previous uh on the playlist podcast i talked with it uh with several staff members from the playlist but now that you've caught up with it i mean i i feel like i i, I gotta know um you you've endured it you you did not like man of steel no i in fact i kind of loathe man of steel just like it's the way it wears it's brooding kind of gloom like an Instagram filter as opposed to the sort of existential dread that Christopher Nolan fine tunes in the dark Knight movies. Mm. It just, after it's something, some style has been established, people just start applying it without any sort of finesse. And like, that's what man of steel felt like is that it was like this brooding introspective version of, of the Superman saga. And it was just like, it was just like the, it was so aggressive and bombarding. And I feel like BVS uh, DOJ is that is that the full acronym? You got it, dude. BVS DOJ is like <laughs> it ups the thundering idiocy of everything, and it's just like any any problem you may have, any sort of like uh, just qualms with the logic of the movie, they just get screamed over. And even if you find yourself getting bored with the action, which you will, which is like, that's so striking and upsetting to me that the action is the most, like one of the most boring parts of these movies. And it's just like, isn't that why you're going? And so the movie just shrieks over like your growing disinterest, your impatience, your discomfort. And then, so people are just like, I think people will mistake being overwhelmed and bombarded with being entertained anymore. Like there's just, Mm. that seems to be the case. And like BVS DOJ is like, (laughs) is the worst example of that or the best, best of the worst basically. Right. And like, well, I'd still put those transformers movies as a little bit. 100%. Like the transformers movies are like, I thought of them a lot. And I thought, I thought of like the Michael Bay kind of Zack Snyder, um, predator high five they would do to each other maybe they hate each other i have no idea but like they just seem one in the same you know yes and um it was it was funny because like i tried to talk my way i tried to talk myself out of seeing this movie i was like you've already seen it you know everything that's going to happen in this movie you know how you're going to feel um i'm just fogging up my mirror like saying this to myself in the mirror and um (laughs) And your your like message to me, you had seen it, <clears throat> and you're like, it's not as bad as people are saying. And I was like, <laughs> I just wanted to like, tr- like transport myself to you, like the Flash does in uh, <laughs> in this like, movie, inex- in, in inexplicably out of a dream, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and just be like, that's the worst to say. It's not as bad as everybody's saying because people, I think people are just going because it's familiar. It's what they know. It's like this established thing that they they feel like they should go to. 
And it's just like, I see these bickering arguments back and forth. And the best people can say is that it's not as bad as you're making it seem. Like, that's not good. That's not, that's <laughs> not something to fucking aspire to as a filmmaker or as a film goer. Like, you shouldn't just be like, eh, it's not that bad. Like, yeah, it, it kind of is that bad. It's idiotic. It doesn't make any sense. And I, I'm sitting there. I was like, I have to make this two and a half hours not be painful. So I took two Advil ahead of time. <laughs> not kidding. And so I was like, so in the opening sequence, when we're introduced to um, uh, Bruce Wayne again, watching yeah, his, his get killed. Again. Like, <laughs> there's a strange kind of like, I don't know, like hallucinatory quality to everything. Like you watch his parents get shot close range in slow motion while you're watching the, the child version of Bruce Wayne plummet also in slow motion down a well. And there's something like kind of borderline hysterical about it. And it's like, there's no logic or coherence to the movie yet. This is the opening credits. And I was like, what if this is just weirdly operatic? And what if it's just this weird unglued kind of almost giallo type movie that because I've been told enough ahead of time, the movie makes no sense. Like the Giallo movies, the Italian horror movies, never attempted to make sense. They had a dream logic to them that barely held together under scrutiny. So it was just like, it was a weird assembly of images that were kind of hypnotically put up against each other with a thin thread of coherence that would just wash away with a bunch of blood, you know? And so it's like, maybe if this movie is just a fever dream, like I'll be able to enjoy it that way. But soon enough, the plot starts and it becomes like really wooden and kind of, and just stupid and humorless. And it was just like, what is this for? Like if comic book nerds are being like, well, it's not supposed to be high art. Like, okay, that's fine. That's fine. But it's not entertaining either. Like it's Mm -hmm. not entertaining or dramatically involving or, you know, exciting because the action is fucking numbing and irritating and assaulting eventually. And it's just like, I don't know. Like, I was looking for a reason because, like, you and I have talked about this before. Like, we don't like to hate our experiences. We like yeah. to feel like our time is well spent and that we've given ourselves to something dramatically involving, you know? And so I tried. I tried for like entry points and I was just like, no, that's well, I mean, Ben Affleck's pretty good. He's kind of puffy. So he just looks like a, you know, kind of water retented Batman. That's different. And Henry Cavill, I don't not really 100 percent on board with him. And Amy Adams, bless her heart, has like the only, I think, dramatically credible moment in the film. And Jeremy Irons, I think, is a good Alfred. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, now we know why um, Ben Affleck was so like muscular and Gone Girl. I mean, like he was. Yeah, totally. He was. He was do- yeah, he was doing. Uh, you know, he was doing training montages for, for for this movie. Don't you feel like it? Just felt like no one was in the same movie, though. You know? What oh, I mean? absolutely. Like, I mean, the height of that is Jesse Eisenberg as Lex Luthor, where I almost feel bad for the guy because right, because he was swinging for the fences and like, and he's having really fun where no, yeah, nobody else is really having fun or not playing to be having fun. They're they're playing it seriously, and Eisenberg actually tries to inject a level of fun, and it's like the worst case scenario of what you're talking about. He he belongs in a completely different movie. Yeah, but then again, this is about five movies squished hammered jammed packed together so much so that they're like the movie debuts this weekend this last weekend and they're like don't worry we've got the half an hour longer r-rated cut coming so yeah no thanks i don't care what and that was the other thing is that like it's this do you remember when there was rumors of darren aronofsky Doing a, a Batman movie is prior to the Christopher Nolan ones. Yeah, he was going to do Batman Year One, like his own version of that. Yes, right. And so he was just primed to make this super gritty, like really fucked up. This is after I think Requiem for a Dream. Yep. And he was like, you know, kind of he was he was gunning for it being an R-rated one, and and so it's just like you see, kind of like I felt like a lot of this movie, I was watching Zack Snyder drunk in a sports bar yelling about how he's going to make that movie. But I was watching the movie, but it just felt like I was watching the conversation of him. Like, I'm going to make that fucking movie, man. There's going to be pedophiles in it. It's going to be super fucked up, man. And like, that's what it felt like. And none of it landed. Like, it was just like, Mm. okay, here's all this new superficial grit and none of it. And it's just depressing. It's not for kids. And I think people, I see grown up nerds, 
talking about how that's cool, like how, and not that I don't think everything should be for kids, right? Completely. In fact, like I hate that everything's catered towards a PG thirteen friendly audience. But it's like understand you're making a superhero movie, like so you're making it for people like in their from their thirties to forties to just like pat themselves on the back with like why why like why wouldn't you make it like elated and fun in parts because it's not fun in any way right and that's the most confounding thing is is that that approach that you're talking about is the one you think warner brothers would be hewing to would be going for since this is the thing that creates their next decade slate of big movies essentially and yeah it's it i think they I mean, the movie's already made ton of money. We've talked about it on the prior playlist podcast, and that's basically everybody's talking about it this week. It's made lots of money, but will it? it will it really make the money required to make this behemoth, sure, overpriced thing, piece of crap movie? Basically, like to make it profitable, it might not. And, it, and now it's established as this is this this is the way these movies are now. So, and it's um, yeah, it's, like, it's troublesome. You're, it is troublesome, and like your your kind of answer, as honest as it was, like it's not that bad, is just like that that sort of shrugging resignation that is just like uh, this is you know well if these are movies are going to come out you know we got to see them and it's just like I want I just I wish this one would burn up in flames and like mm-hmm. so I, as much as I think it's hyperbole to say it's the worst because I think I think it's also hypocritical because there's plenty of other like movie movies just like it that don't get the same ire. So it's like, why arbitrarily scrutinize this one? Mm. One, yeah. like maybe Zack Snyder's not that likable of an individual. Who knows? I've never really, be- besides the Dawn of the Dead remake, liked one of his movies. So mm-hmm. I like, maybe that's why the people just want to rip critics at least want to rip it apart. I think so. I mean, yeah, because critics for the most part and definitely audiences, they feel warmer to a Joss Whedon or a John Favreau, right. you know, but they've each made, I would say, bad sequels to their Marvel movies. Sure. Uh, to me, BVS DOJ, it's amazing how uh, more complicated it is to acronym, acronym that yeah. uh, title. It's, Acronymize. To me, yeah, acronym. It's to me, um, it's just, it's on the same level as like an Avengers 2 or Iron Man 2, and it suffers from a lot of the same problems. It's just one is coming out is out now and made by this director that I think less critics are a fan of. Um, And uh, I think those Marvel movies sort of get more of a pass because they are fun. They're all fun in some way. They're forgettable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even the bad ones, like there's a clip to them. There's at least a likability to, you know, Robert Downey Jr. in Iron Man two, which was a fucking mess. But like, I still watched it and like I at least wasn't bored like because like I'm aware of the mechanics of why BVS DOJ is not working like as I'm watching it because I'm so disengaged from everything because from scene to scene it's just not working yeah. like the logic doesn't make any sense and and just like the the characters motivations are completely senseless like and I think you 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 know maybe somebody would argue like they're, he's giving the audience the benefit of the doubt that he's not overloading a bunch of backstory onto them. But it's like, well, yeah, but let, let, let's assume like nobody knows who Lex Luthor is because has he been established in any other franchise movie? No. So it's just not- like nobody knows who he is. Nobody knows what his motivation is. And so it just comes across as bad writing. You know what I mean? It's just like m- motiveless people who are just kind of like grinning and, you know, I don't know, like, it's just it, the whole movie just didn't hold together except for the mechanics of like the score and the action set pieces. Like they would get to an action set piece and I'm like, well, this is at least competently done, I guess. I don't really understand what's going on inside of it. Mm. But how we got here or why we're even here, like was never spelled out. And I don't feel like it's because I wasn't paying attention. You know no, what I mean? No, it's because the movie, it is bad, right? And you say it feels like bad, right? And it, it is. I mean, and it's, it's it's really the most deflating, depressing thing as just of avid moviegoer, as a fan of movies, is that uh, so much money, so much money spent on something, so much resources, so many, so but many then it talented suffer people. Because it like it makes it back. It has a titanically right. big opening weekend, and it's just like, right. all right. So there's no 
like we will, we won't rise to the standards that are like set for us because we're just eating we're willfully eating fucking garbage. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> like, but what if this is the movie that sort of sets the course soon for that big big um, failure that like Spielberg and Lucas were talking about years ago? That right. like w- one or two or maybe three of these movies in a year will implode to such a degree. Like you'll have more than just a Fantastic Four in like last year. You'll have you know, a movie on this scale, like BVS, DOJ, or whatever comes in its wake, they might be the ones that fail hard because uh, though the audience has sort of at best, like you've said, say, oh, this movie's not as bad as everybody's saying. I don't think, it, it seems like most people don't like it all that much. And you will see how people really felt about this movie when it comes time for that next for that sequel, for that Justice League movie, because that's going to be the response from what people thought about it. Right now, we're seeing the response from all the people that bought into the marketing or that we're going to see right. it opening weekend. So, no matter what. Yeah. yeah like, it's a- when I saw it yesterday, there was no one in the theater. There was five people in the theater. And it was right, a gigantic 70-millimeter right. screening room. And it was just like, maybe this is just... we. I know we've talked about this before, where it's like, after opening weekend, like theaters will be like lonely and desolate during the week, you know, cause like nobody's going to like matinees. I went to a five o'clock show, so it should have been picking up, but like mm. there was no one there. And I was like, well, this is the number one movie at the box office and no one's here. So it's just like, maybe it did have an initial rush and then it's just like petering out basically. I think it's going to peter out fast too, but uh, we'll see. I mean, you, 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 you know, you alluded to that. It, it's like made its money back. Not really. When you look at it, it has to, apparently the, the word is that this movie has to make a billion with a B dollars. Oh to, my God. To be profitable, dude. Like North of like 800 million is when it will break. Even they say that's crazy it's because of all the money they've spent on the, not just the budget, but like the marketing, which was massive for it. And, um, really, I think that that's one of many ways of the things we've already talked about that that sort of lead me into our a movie that we actually do care about that we want that we're yeah. r- really here to talk about is and it's put out by the same studio Warner Brothers crazy I know <laughs> it's so crazy um, and then the, within weeks of each other um, and uh, it is it is our our movie of this of this episode it's it's Jeff Nichols Midnight Special What do you know about Alton Meyer? Here it fits. Things would break. Cars would shut down, that kind of thing. Others have described seeing things. Did he show you things? Yes. What kinds of things? I wouldn't know where to start. We need to know where he is. You all have no clue what you're dealing with, do you? I mean, just to start, that this movie cost $20 million to make, is what Jeff Nichols said in an interview. Um, and, um, man, I mean, one place to start. This movie looks bigger, feels bigger, looks better than whatever they spent on Batman versus Superman, which was, you know, $250, 300000000 million just Yeah, whatever they spent it. on the bus ads. <laughs> Batman versus Superman was what they spent on Midnight Special, and you feel every dollar, like... God, it's all up there. ...working, and, like... I, it's inter- I was thinking about, between the two movies, like, the physiological response, and, like, before seeing BVS, DOJ, we could retire that in a second. <laughs> um... I felt genuine dread. Like, I was just like, I don't want to see this. I don't want to sit through another one of these. I just, I don't want this experience. And, like, I feel like the defiance of that experience, because it's becoming monotone, is, like, necessary in order to just, like, not have this become all there is. And so when seeing Midnight Special, which I was like, I didn't know much about, you know, honestly. Like, we love Jeff Nichols' work, obviously. You know, his first film, Shotgun Stories, is like a fantastic little slice of life. Oh yeah. And um Take Shelter we both were big proponents for. And then his like detour like from Take Shelter cuz it looked like he was maybe treading in in genre territory. He just went to a a straight up very involving and unusual coming of age movie like with a with a down south kind of bent. And like it's incredible. And for, so it's for mud like, you're talking about. Yeah, mud. And so like he's building this like this pedigree but I, again, I didn't know much about it. And so I kind of went in 
somewhat uninformed just knowing that it was like a science fiction movie and like if dread was my experience like leading up to going to see batman versus Sur- superman dawn of justice <laughs> ah, fuck it, i'm just gonna acronymize it just um, do it <laughs> you save time time is time is important especially when you lost two and a half hours of your life yesterday so like the feeling i felt as midnight special started and like all the economy with the storytelling. So oh, opening scene yes. inside a motel and like you're, you're introduced to um, Michael Shannon's character, Joel Edgerton's character. And uh, what's the name of the actor who plays um, the, the, young the boy? child? Alton. Uh, the, the actor's name is Jaden Lieber. Yeah. Jaden Lieber. Great little so, actor, man. Yeah. So you're <clears throat> in your wordless exchange between all three of them as they're sort of gearing up to leave a motel room and you're given all the information you need. Like you're given the sort of how the characters carry themselves, the world they live in, how ultra realistic it is. And this is like just great storytelling and great script writing. And like you feel as they exit that motel room and you have all this information of that, like there's a Amber alert out for Alton Meyer, which is the character's name of the child and and just everything's given to you and there's just a sense of like mounting kind of dread and threat and like and the movie starts and there's a there's a a feeling of genuine atmosphere we talked about this i remember with cop car that as mm. flawed as that movie was there was a sense of place like you yeah. you felt like you were in an actual environment like in the sort of badlands terrain that that movie took place in mm-hmm. and that became its own character and i think that was invaluable to the movie as flawed as it was and Midnight Special is just, like, it's set in the South, and, like, it's it's world-building and sense of, like, documentation is, like, it's incredible. And, yeah. like, as I was, this physiological response I'm talking about, like, I just started to cry. <laughs> as, like, hyperbolic as that sounds, like, I was just so, like, I was, like, I'm in. Like, I'm in with this movie, because they, like, they they realize as they get into the car... And they're like obviously trying to like outrun somebody and they hear the the APB go out that their car has been spotted and they know that like Alton Meyer, the child who there's an Amber Alert out for, is in the car. Mm-hmm. And so they veer off down a side street and like as soon as that takes off and like the midnight special like title comes up, so it was good. just like chills. Yeah, and it's like so the movie good. doesn't stop. The movie never stops. But for that kind of like constant pace you were still given every bit of room and every bit of nuance and character and like a sense of stake and a sense of involvement and humor and everything that i've been missing from like from movies nowadays it just feels squeezed and hyper compressed and suffocating like it all was there yeah. And so for all of like the times a giant rage monster punches Superman and or Batman <laughs> through a building and everything in the entire world is exploding, like I would rather watch a simple exchange between two people in this movie over and over again or watching Joel Edgerton see a family hug and have, have oh. his entire character's life visible on his face while he's doing next to nothing. Like yeah. it's, I got chills it's just like, thinking about that. Like I'm, that... I'm Batmaning over like you, your exchange. Like I'm just screaming <laughs> over you right now. <laughs> it's okay. I, I, Joe, I love this excitement, and you got me excited when you got you. You've had this movie in LA for a couple weeks now because of yeah. its initial limited release. So I've just been jealous, you know. And we we do this to each other. We sort of sure tease each other when one of us gets to see a movie we both want to see in advance like this, and. Uh, it's happened for me with Green Room last year, for instance, and you know we're we're gonna get to that one in a future soon enough episode. But yeah, you, I love this excitement because I think we both anticipated this movie to be one that we would really go for. Mm-hmm. But so there's an inherent level of hype that we put into this because sure. we like Jeff Nichols. The movie sounds pretty cool. And we, the, the, a different kind of hype, but no less, you know, the stakes are just as high for us personally, for this movie to live up to that to, for us. And yet it, it, for me, and it sounds like for you surpasses that it, it reminds you of how good a studio like 
a this is a genre movie. It's a multiple yeah. genre movie, but it's a genre movie. It's a chase movie, sci-fi, fantasy, whatever you want to label it as. It's how good they can still be. And I think the reason we're really quick to want to clutch our arms around it and really just not lose this movie and, you know, like um, go to bat for it and just it, it just praise it to high heaven is because we don't get these movies very often. No, I mean, people talk about the like mid-level adult drama going away. Well, what's been gone for a basically forever is, is this kind of movie, a studio low budget genre movie. Like that, that's insane. I mean, we get a looper every now and again, we get a, we get a Sicario, something like that. Um, or, you know, another comparison would be like JJ Abrams, super eight which mm-hmm. is sort of an interesting movie to look at when you when you look at Midnight Special because both these movies have a reverence for the ty- for the era of filmmaking and movies that you I think you were feeling instantly with this movie that that anybody that's on board with Midnight Special should feel is like if you grew up in that era is like a great 70s but like also into that 80s sort of chase genre movie that still has heart to it is yeah. for me the the big difference against something like Super 8 which neither of us really went for it. Didn't think it was bad at the time when it came out, but yeah, you know. I think our gripe was that it, <clears throat> it had a reverence for those movies, but what it did was create like a kind of museum, perfect diorama version yes. of the world. Whereas like what, what ET, what the Spielberg movies of that era, <clears throat> the like close encounters, poltergeist, even though he didn't direct it and ET, like he was documenting the world that was in front of him at the time. And so, like, creating the sort of Amblin, you know, quote-unquote universe for 2011 when Super 8 came out, it was just like, well, like, why why are you doing – like, it's more important to capture the spirit than it is the, like, cosmetics of it. (laughs) And so, I mean, Jeff Nichols grew up in the South. Like, his life is in the South, and, like, that's the world he knows – and so he he knows how to capture it and he knows how to like pinpoint. And so the spirit of those movies is intact, whereas like it may look physically different. I mean, it doesn't to me, it doesn't. But he's not trying to like capture a sort of aesthetic of 1982 in you know, Southern California suburbia. You know right. what I mean? Right. It's it's all just like it's more organic with this movie. <clears throat> and I think Jeff Nichols has said, and this is his style, is like he kind of thinks of, um, uh, or he's struck by like a really strong um, metaphor that mm-hmm. hits him, and he tries to like design a story around that. And I think that right there is is like the biggest special effect that Midnight Special has yeah. to play. His entry point is always like it, is something personal. So like yes, he yes. when he was developing this story, he he wanted to have like a, a sci fi chase movie. And like that, that part was sort of like, that was the through line, but he needed to, to have something to sort of like, to latch on to, to make it actually come to life. And so like he, he had a personal, um, sort of incident where his child was born and like something went wrong and it was like, it was possible that they were going to lose their baby basically. Right. And the thought like that sense of fragility and that sense that like maybe the baby wasn't, didn't belong, like belong with them on earth, like that sense of like that impending sort of like dread and danger and stake is just like, that's, that's all over this movie in the sense that like, so Michael Shannon plays, uh, Alton Meyer's father. And so he's, he's essentially abducted his own son in the eyes of the law who are after this child. And you're sort of putting together what, why the, the, FBI is after the child and why the, this group of this church group kind of similar to the branch Davidians and Waco, like why they, the, which is where they escape from, like why they want the child. And so slowly you're putting together like why Alden is special and stuff like that. And so just the sense of like this family keeping it together and that personal investment and how all of that sense of like, um, stake and like, loss potential loss is all established like so clearly so clearly through like michael shannon's face like and so clearly through just their interactions with each other and like it's so minimal and so economic and so just beautifully done and beautifully performed and like just seeing the synergy between performance and technique and filmmaking technique 
is fucking it's beautiful and such a heartening reminder of like what we love you know right just to see see michael shannon um like breathing heavily in a scene that's really like that's really intense and then the scene eclipses to it just cuts to an overhead shot of traffic at night and this it's just this beautiful sense of like oh god what happened and like oh now we're just like lost in this like beautiful image and right. so like he's able to ground this like sense of propulsion this chase movie that he wanted to make in the personal you know yeah. and like that's that's all been like eradicated i feel in like modern movies in the, big movies it really yeah, has the big movies for sure it's like the because he operates from a sense of like metaphor at least with this movie and i'd say its closest cousin to him is take shelter yeah. where where the interesting switch here is that the way i read take shelter is that it's not really supernatural the things we're seeing are uh the things that the character michael shannon's character in take shelter is seeing are based on his psych his fractured psychosis like yeah. the guy's going through it that's the way i read that movie and that's what makes it such a strong film to me but here we we the things are really happening the supernatural is there but the metaphor is maybe even stronger in this one and it allows him to ground the film in a reality like you said in a relatable reality because he gets personal he gets specific which in a lot of cases and i would say with this one makes it universal i don't have kids but i can see and get invested in the emotional stakes between a mom a dad and their little boy possibly leaving them forever or them not knowing what to do, but knowing that they've got to help their boy get to this next stage. That right there is brilliant, but it also allows for these moments that, and that's where I feel it's the anti super eight because it's not so slavishly trying to recreate the Spielberg feel. It's just taking the best elements from what Spielberg back then, especially was so had like a natural gift for like, to me, Jaws is my favorite movie of all time for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest is the scenes where the little boy is mimicking his dad at the dinner table. And these little moments where you latch on to a real thing, a little brief fleeting moment and it's gone, but it like, it makes everything so real. So then when a giant shark sinks a boat, you kind of can go with it. Not only because you're invested in that story and, but you're invested in those characters because you've Mm -hmm. lived with them a little bit. And man, All of Jeff Nichols movies have that, but in Midnight Special, it's like not just the glue for all the scenes. It's just like it it adds so much more to it. So when we see the scene you referenced where Joel Edgerton looks at this family as they kind of have this moment where they hug it out together is so touching. But I even think of a little moment that really struck me in Midnight Special was... Kirsten Dunst, who's the mother of this boy, and she kind of gets picked up about halfway through into this movie and becomes involved in the chase and with them, is Alton, the little boy, is taking a shower in a hotel bathroom, Mm -hmm. and she just does what any good mom would do, right? She knocks on the door and says, are you okay in there? And you just hear the boy just say, yeah, 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 I'm good. You know, like, Mm -hmm. it's such a, it's such a, essentially a nothing moment when we think of movies, like, Everything sometimes feels like it has to be something big, but it's not. It is, it is the, that is the important stuff in a Jeff Nichols movie. And it's just, it's like moments like that. Kristen Dunst just being a mom, you know, and the movie giving that breathing for longer than even that moment, but allowing that moment some room to breathe is just like part of what Jeff Nichols' inherent gift is as a filmmaker. You don't have to worry about me. I like worrying about you. You don't have to anymore. I'll always worry about you. That's the deal. Yeah, it's it's hard not to gush about a movie like this. Like I can't wait to see this movie again because I feel like there's so much to offer, and I I hope the same effect happens for people that go to see it because it's it's going wider this weekend. <clears throat> And they're doing this sort of slower rollout, which I think is smart for Warner Brothers to do this. Yeah. But I've also heard in some circles that they don't really know what to do with this movie. Because yeah, and like to me, that's that's really depressing. That like so depressing. It's more it, depressing than BVS DOJ. I think if you put good job. I think if you put <laughs> like anyone in this movie, because listening to like the audience, especially the second time I saw it, yeah, um, <clears throat> just listening to him like react like people scattered throughout the audience were like oh 
oh, oh no, like just this the genuine sense of involvement in the in the drama, and so because you're given all of the the room and nuance in the movie, the the sense of like the the actual action of the film, like has has the sort of like has the payoff, has the thrill that's kind of been missing in the sort of screaming overloaded movies lately. <laughs> and it'll be like really economic. It'll be a quick action sequence, like, you know, a, an exchange of gunfire or just like, you know, just them losing Alton for a second and then something like being revealed. Like it'll, it, it's just like these moments that are genuinely thrilling. And to remember that's possible, you know, as opposed yeah. to just being like, overwhelmed you know and sort of like and exhausted and battered basically by something that's just like thundering at you for 20 to 25 minutes and like allowing that to be like yeah that's, that's what i paid for like like those right. explosions you know or, and so, like, or even further like it, it might even what you're saying might get into why warner's it, it shows the like a problem with the way ho- the big studios work now is they don't know what to do with this movie because they can't hang it off. They can't latch it on to something familiar. And Jeff Nichols, unfortunately, not yet, but I think will be someday, is not like a Quentin Tarantino style name that you can right. hang the movie on to market that. So they don't know what to do, but they, they know they can market the hell and spit out of Batman versus Superman. Cause everybody's familiar with that. And I think that leads into this weird cyclical thing where the directors of a lot of those movies, the big movies don't really seem to care. Cause you're already familiar. What do you care? What Lex Luthor's um, motivation is right? Like, you know him, you know, Batman who cares. So then the audience doesn't care. Yeah. And that's so the what danger do you care that's... about basically, <laughs> yeah. you know, like what, if you're not there for art, fine. If you're not there, if it's not really fundamentally thrilling in the sense of entertainment, okay. But what are you then there for? You're not there for the characters, because you're you're just kind of like you get it, you get it, you get it. No, no, here's the Flash. No, here's Wonder Woman. Uh, You get it, you get it. And it's just like, huh? What are we here? What what is this for? Is this are we just collecting action figures? And there's no like actual investment in what's going on or the world that's being built or destroyed. You know, like I don't. And so just having all of that, all of the opposite basically on display in, in a midnight special, is just like just having people you care about like almost immediately and having them surprise you and having their like the performances really sing and having the technique not ever overshadow or be showy in the movie, but to really just like be be a beautiful piece of work and like the music the music working so so oh like gosh. richly i mean david wingo who did the score is like i thought of it throughout the movie even though i will say next to the witch this is definitely one of my favorite scores of this year like <clears throat> easily like love the throbbing synth right and really what it it almost made me chuckle is like here we go it's another carpenter influence sort of synthy score but the fact that, you know, we've talked about this, that Carpenter might be the most influential director on like young filmmakers, at least in America, making small genre movies right now. Yeah. And and in a way, it's like familiar, but I'm really still loving seeing the new angles, the new modern approaches to a Carpenter influence score like this. And I'm not saying David Wingo just went, I need to make a Carpenter score or that no, Jeff Nichols demanded. It's different it. enough. Like Exactly. Especially in the in the big finale, which oh. genuinely feels like a finale and is like is is really emotionally just like raw and involving. Like I you know, in that finale, like the music builds and crescendos in this way that's like doesn't sound like John Carpenter. It sounds like something kind of like other. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's got like some Vangelis kind of elements oh, yeah. to it, but it's just yeah. it's got this like build in this crescendo that's pretty incredible oh god it's yeah i mean and i'm only coming off of seeing this movie about three hours ago really or three four hours ago and usually i would like a little more separation from a movie before i'm gonna gush about it but it this is one of those it's like a sure bet like i came coming out of it i'm like well i know how i feel about this movie very strongly already yet cannot wait to see it again yeah and it really is a big screen movie i can't i can't underline it enough i'll just basically repeat what i said earlier is like this movie is so much bigger than bvs doj it's so so there's more there's so much more at stake there's there's just everything that's deficient in that big behemoth 
monstrosity is what this movie excels in. Yeah. And yet I do think because of the way a lot of these studio movies are, um, uh, the, the sort of things they're teaching a modern audience are things we've complained about before as well, like infanti- infantilizing an audience yeah, and giving them the type of expectations for a movie that I actually don't think warrant, that doesn't make the best movie. And I, I find that there will be some people, the wider this movie goes, um, I'm excited to see how it does, but I think there's going to be some people that want that exposition that they don't get in dialogue in this movie. Mm-hmm they want the pieces all connected that this movie doesn't want to necessarily lay out for you, but that there might be complaints there. I've, I've talked to a few people who saw it earlier than me that didn't like the ending of this movie of midnight special. And I, while I am a little perplexed by that because it worked so strongly for me, yeah, I, I can also understand it, but only in so much as like, I see the, the way the audience is being like, sort of trained to watch big movies now and it can affect a really good little genre movie like this. Um, and, and it's, it might be a, a divisive movie, but I'm really heartened to hear that your audience, you said, seem to be quite taken with it and kind of, you know, uh, clutching their, their, you know, their armchairs maybe at the right moments and all that. That's yeah. good. To, that's good to hear because I, I need to see this now with a big audience. I, I want to, because I want to, I want people to go for it. Like, like we are, and I think they can. Yeah, I I hope so. I just the fact that like, like I can understand a giant studio's concern because they like they because they gave him basically. He was saying at the Q and A that they let him do what he wanted, you know, and like they Be- because he kept the budget so low, essentially. Yeah, and I think that they they liked his his track record so far, and so they're like, yeah, and I think with twenty million, there's like a very low risk for a studio. It sounds psychotic that twenty million is a low risk, but <laughs> yeah, like, think what you could do with twenty million, dude. Jesus. Yeah, and just like thinking, <laughs> thank you, th- thinking about like. <laughs> BVS DOJ like the fact that it has to make a billion dollars back like that's psychotic but it's just like they gave him you know carte blanche to do whatever he wanted and he delivered but it's also like because you know like what you were saying with the audience is being conditioned to expect a certain type of experience now it's so disheartening that like this is a tough sell you know it's just like right you know like you have you have great actors, and by the way, you mentioned Kirsten Dunst and like like that simple exchange in the motel room. She's so good in this movie. She's like, so good. She's amazing in this movie. Like the entire cast is great. Like Adam Driver is outstanding in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and just to see these people who are now like un- rightfully plugged into these big movies, like Adam Driver is now in the he's in the Star Wars world. Yep. And Michael Shannon was in Man of Steel. Kirsten Dunst was in the old Spider-Man movie. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what's Joel Edgerton? Like, uh, Gods of Egypt? <laughs> sure. <laughs> not, yeah. not so, pr- I mean, not he's so in, good. He's in tons of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I love him. I do too. But, like, and so they've all been, but, like, seeing them actually work. Because it broke my heart to see Michael Shannon in Man of Steel and look like he didn't know what he was doing there. Because he's, like, he's used right. to engaging in like with other actors in a real world, in a real like setting, you know, like I don't necessarily know his entire background, but I know that he's a true like fucking Steppenwolf type actor. Who's like, who like has done a lot of stage work and is just used to like getting into the grit of performance and being in a movie that big and sort of that checked out in terms of like having to just get, get all this like technical shit fine-tuned he probably was a little lost like the way tom hardy talks about being lost in uh fury road Mm. but then he was like you know he signed off after seeing the movie tom hardy did and he was just like i understand why george miller was distracted and so (laughs) yeah okay good for you okay but like other people you know if if they need a little bit of direction like i think jeff nichols works incredibly well with actors i mean just from the performances in his films you know yeah yeah. So. By the by the way, I made a mistake. Uh, Joel Egerton was in Exodus: Gods and Kings, the very bad Ridley Scott movie from a yes, couple years ago. That's right. Yeah. So I got my uh, whitewashed so depressing. Uh, Egyptian just blurring together now, like <laughs> this, all of them. Like you exactly. can blur that together with Ben Hur now, which is coming out. Right. And honestly, 
that's almost in the interest with the way the system is built for these giant movies for the studios. That's what it's I like, mean. Like, there's just forget. a sense of like, have I seen that? Do I do, yep. Did I want to see that originally when it came out first? Should right. I, I'll see it again. I don't know. And so there's just like this sense of like familiarity and routine that has nothing to do with like enjoying something necessarily. I mean, these are huge generalizations. So like my apologies if anybody genuinely loves a Batman versus Superman but if, like, if you do, I'd love to know. <laughs> yeah, can Why? I ask you some questions? Yeah, we have so many questions. <laughs> Were you awake? I mean, how could you be asleep during that just shriek fest at the end? And then, not to mention the bagpipes for the no spoilers, but there's a lot of bagpipes, especially right at the end. The headache was kicking in. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, you know another big movie that I really couldn't help, uh, especially by the end of Midnight Special that I couldn't help thinking of that was um, not only a financial kind of a bomb, but um, really I couldn't even come to its defense as a movie. I, in fact, one of my least favorite movies from last year was um, Brad Bird's Tomorrowland. I don't think you ever saw it. Is that, I didn't know. Yeah. Well, this movie has a lot similar to that movie actually. And, um, I'm trying to be vague because I don't want to ruin Midnight Special for people. Although this to me is how you do Tomorrowland. And I wanted to defend Tomorrowland when it came out, especially when it did so poorly at the box office, mostly because I'm a big fan of Brad Bird, but, um, also because like, if, you know, if a movie's good and does poorly, you want to defend it and get people to see it. But like, I couldn't even do that because that movie fell trap. Um, you know, fell to the trap of like needing this big cacophonous, loud, world threatening ending to it. And all the CG just gets pumped into it. And what do you know? Robots start fighting each other for no reason in the, in that movie. It yeah. just didn't need it. And what I like is Jeff Nichols takes a similar idea, but one that's an original concept for him. And he sort of strips away all that external stuff. And his exposition is mostly visual or in these very terse, short dialogue exchanges that don't give you a lot on the surface. But when you dig and pay attention, it tells you everything you need to know and maybe even more. But we're, we're in a world now where like, um, shit, like 2009 when Avatar came out, a lot of people reviewed that movie positively. And I remember some people complimenting like Cameron how he like lays out the world so quickly, you know, like there mm-hmm. there's this whole beginning and they tell you what Pandora is, but that's all done by a character literally giving a speech to a bunch of actors in a scene right. and giving you the laziest amount of yeah. Dialogue exposition. What is, what does midnight special do? As you already said, it's like, it's doing it visually with camera movements and um, you know, bits of dialogue here and there. It's letting you put the pieces together because it trusts you as an audience member. Yeah. And, I love that because we are smart moviegoers. If you let us, you know, if you let us do that, Hollywood and Jeff Nichols is uh, a guy that believes in that. And he's, and he's doing that with these, with these films, which is just yet, you know, one more reason we, we have to like, you know, we're not worthy Jeff Nichols. Like we're so, I, I just think we're lucky people like you and me, people that genuinely just want good movies. Like you said, you don't have to, if you just want to be entertained, this is still the movie for you. This is, yeah. there's no doubt this midnight special is the movie for you because it is a genre movie, but it has weight to it. I like cared. I cared about this movie. I cared about the people in it. And, um, it's, and it, it's and harder it, these days to say because it reminds us of like an era where <clears throat> there was sort of strong storytelling or stronger storytelling and room and nuance. Like it doesn't feel in that way, it still doesn't feel derivative in any way. Mm-hmm, like it feels mm-hmm. urgent and contemporary. And so I feel like it doesn't take much. Like if you dropped an average audience member who was just like, you know, used to being like, I like the Superman. And like, if you just drop them into midnight special, it wouldn't take long to acclimate and be like, Oh, this is like, this is actually a very exciting movie. You know, like, I mean, that actually technically has a Superman at its heart. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, there, I mean, there are a lot of, like, weird overlaps. There's yeah. pulling eyeballs. There's Michael <laughs> Shannon. There's all kinds of just otherworldliness. There's the potential what? that, you know, Alton Meyer, this child that everybody's pursuing, like, might not be of this world, and we don't know where he's from. And there's mm-hmm. just, like, there's just so much. But it's all rooted in, you know, like, in something real, it feels like, in something that has stake, in something that, like, 
it just makes like the the most the smallest thing seem like huge you know and and these the the smallest moments that would just like that get screamed over in every other like film experience big movies nowadays it's just like it like everything is told in silence everything is exchanged in in a look and it's just like it's all there and every everything that we've been like missing is like completely present and alive in this film and what do you know it comes out in our golden time of year in the spring it's and, true. Uh, yeah. It's it's always there to comfort us and it looks like this month of April and May are going to continue that with with the other stuff that's coming out that we're that some of which we've seen and we can't wait to talk about but you know a lot of which we're just anticipating because we genuinely love movies and we want them to be on this level yeah. and they they, my, they can't always be but uh you know you got to you got to embrace it when you get it. One of my fr- a friend of the podcast uh Jay Weinbrenner who you've you've seen some of his short work. He did yes. the how are you doing short film? He yes. was like, after he and I talked about the witch, he was like, Joe's dead inside. He like, just, he doesn't like anything anymore. He's broken. <laughs> His spirit's broken. And then like, I told him that I basically cried out of relief that I liked something when I watched midnight <laughs> special. Cause yeah. there was just points. There's plenty of points to just to be lost in the story and start to tear up in midnight special. But there was Definitely. just like moments of just, grace and like beauty that i was just like oh god thank god i like something (laughs) i was thankful too and you know there's also a sense of awe in this movie that is that is absolutely missing from the much more expensive movies because the awe comes from the way the sequences build up to an effect or to a uh, or to a reveal or an action sequence because there's a sequence with these satellites that you will remember and it's it's just like it demands you see it on a big screen, but it's also like, wow, uh, an effect, special effects can look can look fresh these days. Well, it can it can genuinely shock you. Yes, like, just be like, and give you a, a like the sense of the importance that like in every other huge movie when they cut to the reaction shot and someone going, oh my god, like <laughs> you don't feel it. You're just sort of like, uh huh, yeah, yeah. Here's where this happens. Here's where the Statue of Liberty gets punched out, you know, (laughs) whatever it is. Like, we've just gotten so numb and accustomed to, like, the entire world being blown up over and over again that, like, you do have to make it intimate. You do have to, like, and that's what this movie does, but it also gives you a bigness. It returns to, like, when the big moments happen, they are big and they are, like, genuinely thrilling in a way that they, like, I feel like they just haven't been anymore. Agreed. Agreed. Well... I think we could go on for another hour, but we, we, I feel like this, this movie might come up in future coming up episodes for sure. because yeah, I, I'm undoubtedly going to see it again. You just might, it's, you already said you want to see it again. So I think, I think we've got it at a good place here and we should, we should leave it at that. But I mean, suffice to say, we love this movie. This is, this is the kind of movie that like this podcast was built for. It's what we're, it's what we yearn for when we go to the theater and, um, it feels so good to have one of those. So, yeah, love this midnight special. Before we sign out, uh, before we end this episode, we wanted to do uh, to introduce uh, a segment that we should maybe explain a little more thoroughly than we have uh, of recent because we've been doing it on this podcast for a while. But now that we're on the the playlist as one of their podcasts, um, let's explain what this episode, uh, what this segment, hold up is, Joe. Well, hold up started as a way for us to take movies that we sort of are that are beloved to us personally, but may have like a sort of troubled, you know, may have a critical backlash. Didn't it's misunderstood in some way. So like there, there's something kind of um, embarrassing about our adoration for these movies. This is how it initially was sort of started. Right. And so we would bring these movies up and each of us would watch that movie and the other person would act as a critical counterpoint to sort of pick apart why why one of us is as attached to the movie as like we are and maybe see if it, it is like a hidden gem or it, it does just sort of like uh, fall apart under scrutiny. So <laughs> um, now it's, I think it's become something a little different where it's just something that we're reexamining movies that may not even be conflicting for us. Like we just love them. Like we watched and dissected Slapshot, which I don't think you would even argue as like, you know, like a questionable movie, you know, right. that it's like, it's part of a canon of like sort of established great beloved sports movies. And so we were just taking a look at it to see if like how it holds up 
over time. And uh, and so my pick, and like here I'll give you the angle for it, is uh, Matthew Kasovitz's La Ain. Oh, beautiful. I forgot. You're right. Yes. It's so to me, it's interesting, especially now, because this movie came out now 21 years ago, or mm. I think it, it came out in France in 1995, may have made it to the States after Jodie Foster helped usher it into theaters in yeah. 1986. So it's about 20 years old. And to me, it was a hugely impactful movie. Loved it. But he has yet to make another movie as good. In fact, he's made movies that were kind of wincingly not good. Maybe <laughs> bad. Gothica, I think it's oh, a yeah. terrible movie. Um, he made so, one with Vin Diesel, Babylon AD, which I heard was yeah. bad too. Yeah, uh, Crimson Rivers, uh, also with um, our boy, you know, Ooh. Vincent Cassell. So, oh, yeah. um, so now it just seems like if you make a sort of bad first feature, especially like if you if you're given enough means to make a bigger movie you're kind of your director jail. And so it just seems like it's harder for people to make a first impression and then make a follow-up movie. That's like, that's questionable and then just keep going. So there's like filmmakers like Richard Kelly, director of Donnie Darko, who, you know, made a lot of weird wobbly follow-up movies. And so I just, I'd like to take this time to one, take a look at a movie that is so prescient, that is so like, urgent and is so like the film itself just has this like pulse to it mm. and has this like sense of immediacy about the following these teenagers through Paris as the city has been torn apart by protests um, against police. And so it's just like, what could be more prescient than like what's going on now with people just reacting to how murderous and corrupt cops have always been and now it's just mm. undeniable because the proof is constantly being put in front of our faces so here's right. this movie has this urgency has this relevance today and also has a filmmaker who we just want to make a movie as good as this one so i love it i love Lain, it coming up next episode yeah, we'll talk about it in more in depth next episode. But if you listen to this and you wanna, if you haven't seen it, I think we can both at this point yeah. definitely say you. This is a must watch from like the '90s. This is one of the all time great '90s movies. It has a, a Criterion release, which means that it's also streamable on Hulu Plus, so you can yes. watch it there. There you go, and also um, pr- we'll get into this more uh, definitely next episode. But prescient in the way that it, along with the first Pusher movie, I would say you've you've heard me drone on about this. They're the easily the most influential crime movies of all the way up until now, until whatever comes in the next five or ten years, or maybe even further. Like you, you see the ripple effect of these two crime movies. Um, in everything from Gamora to a prophet to all the other great crime movies that have come in their wake, um, the pusher sequels even. Uh, so there's a lot to chew in, to chew on with this movie and I'm excited to just rewatch it, watch it another time. But, uh, yeah, let's, let's find out if it holds up. Let's chew in. All right, so with that, we're going to wrap up episode 126 of Adjust Your Tracking. Uh, we are still, you know, you can be found at the newsroom.nwfilm.org. I'm still archiving our, our episodes there. But now that we are on the playlist, that's where you're going to find this podcast uh, sooner, qu- you know, right away. Mm-hmm. And that's that's mostly our home now uh, moving forward. So. Uh, though you might be subscribed to the Adjust Your Tracking iTunes feed, you'll still get those eventually, but uh, you're going to get this episode and all future ones right away if you go to the Playlist Podcast iTunes feed. So make sure to do that. Make sure to check out the Playlist, which is uh, a blog on the IndieWire blog network. Um, yeah, that's that's how you can email us at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. True. Where else Where else can we be found, Joe? Uh, you Twitter at adjustyourtrack. That's right. That's right. Episodes are coming out. And uh, mm-hmm. we'll link you to articles that we think are worth your time. Absolutely. And um, and also on Facebook as well. You can find us there. And, um, uh, yeah, with that, we want to thank super producer Drew Walner. He recently got to see BVS DOJ. And, you know, I don't want to put his wife on blast. She's a smart individual. She's a freaking doctor. She's smarter than any any of us. 
that just do this movie podcast, but uh, she, she liked, liked she liked it. So, uh, <laughs> well, Drew, I know you're going to hear this. Uh, we might have to talk to Claire. We might. We, she would be our first uh, interviewee that me and Joe would have a lot of questions for. So, um, we'll we'll hopefully deal with that and address it in another episode. But um, really, Drew, we thank you for all your hard work behind the scenes as super producer. Also, got to thank social media intern Chelsea Fung. But uh, first, foremost, and last on the podcast, I got to thank you, Joe, for talking with me today. Thanks, Eric.